you may open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. If the Bible is true, then every one of us is a sinner. Right? If the Bible is true, God prepared a place for the devil, his angels, and every sinner. If the Bible is true, when we die, we are going where the rich man went. Unless there's a Savior. But if the Bible is true, there is a Savior. And it ought to be of our greatest concern to know that we have eternal life. We must ask, do I have eternal life? Events can happen in automobiles. Disease can happen on the inside that we cannot see, and old age approaches for all of us. Right. So we want to comfort ourselves in the Word of God because what you have in your hands is a letter from heaven with comfort, with hope, and, and can give you confidence if you'll believe it. Yes. There is no reason for you to doubt if you're living and loving the Lord Jesus Christ that you have eternal life. And that is what we want to consider this morning. Let us not wait until we're in a serious accident or we have a serious disease or we are on our deathbeds from old age to worry about this question. We want to worry about it this morning. We want to find from the Word of God, do I have eternal life? And we can know that from the Bible. Paul wasn't worried about it. Paul said, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep me. He said, I know there's a crown laid up for me. Paul said, we are confident that if we were to be absent from the body, we would be present with the Lord. Paul didn't have any doubts. We don't want to have any doubts. This is the Bible is given to the people of God to comfort them. The Bible is not given to the world. The world has nothing in the Bible for them except promises of coming judgment. The Bible is given to the people of God to comfort them. And let's look at 1 John 5.13 and remind ourselves of that. 1 John 5.13 These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. The purpose of the Gospel and the purpose of preaching is to encourage teach, instruct, and exhort, and move, and persuade God's people that He has drawn, that He has regenerated, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so that they might know they have eternal life. Right. Notice what John said in this chapter. He did not write First John to unbelievers. What a waste of time right. to write Scripture to someone that God has not regenerated. He wrote to believers that they might know they have eternal life, and to encourage them even to more believe. Right. That's the whole purpose of this morning. Yeah. For you to know that you have eternal life, that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and to encourage you to believe on Him even more, and to lay hold of that salvation that is in Him, not to get it into your possession, because God gave it to you already. You love Him because He first loved you, yes. but in order for you to have greater confidence and hope, To know that your name is in the book of life. By looking into these pages, we can know that our name is in the book of life. That's what we want to do this morning. 
Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. We want to know that. I want every one of you to know that. We don't want to be trying to figure that out when you're sick, ill, or dying. We want to figure that out right now today for you to have that great confidence in your soul to peacefully approach that day. Right? You know, one of the favorite books of the Puritans, and I hardly ever mention any foolish thing like this in the pulpit. Um, you'll see my point. It doesn't mean that I'm endorsing it. One of the favorite books of the Puritans was by Jeremiah Burroughs, and it was the rules of holy living and the rules of holy dying. And there's a way to die a holy death. There's a way to put yourself in Psalm 116, where it says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Right. And we want to do that this morning. We don't want to wait. We want to do it today. I've been preaching this message several times already, and I want to finish it this morning. I hope the Lord will bless us to that end. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Amen. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This morning we've already read John chapter 6. We've already read Psalm 89, verses 19 through 37. In John 6, we read verses 35 through 40. There we saw that God gave some to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ would not fail to save. He would not lose a single one of them. We saw in Psalm 89 that God had chosen a helper for us, a mighty one from among the people to save us. In 1 John 5.13, we've already seen this morning that the things of Scripture are written to those that believe to encourage them into greater faith. Right. And here we come, and Paul's writing Timothy. Here's a letter between two ministers. And so we have Paul writing Timothy and saying, Timothy, don't you be ashamed of the gospel. Don't you be ashamed of being his prisoner. You get out there and preach the gospel, because look what God's done for us. He saved us according to his own purpose and grace. Verse 9, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That's what we saw in John 6, 35 and 40. But then he says in verse 10, he says, But now, that transaction that took place way back in eternity, now it's made manifest. What does it mean to make something manifest? When a ship comes into port, it has a manifest. It's a piece of paper. And what's on the manifest? Everything in the ship that you can't see. It's an inventory of everything in there. When the gospel is made manifest, it's made plain. What you cannot see. We weren't there before the world began. We can see it plainly through the gospel. But it's now made manifest. This purpose and grace of God to save us in Christ Jesus is made clear and plain by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ in time, 4,000 years after creation, 2,000 years ago, who hath abolished death 
He's defeated the power of death. It no longer has any claim on us except these old sin-filled carcasses. And we want to get rid of them who hath abolished death and hath brought light and immortality, eternal life, to life through the gospel. The gospel doesn't bring life and immortality. The gospel brings the message, the encouragement, the comfort, the instruction of eternal life. It brings eternal life to light as to how God gave it, when he assigned it, when he promised it. Right. That's why Titus, the next minister Paul wrote, it starts out this way. Paul, a servant of God to Titus, in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. He promised it. He didn't offer it. He promised it. He promised it just like we read in Psalm 89, that it would be sure to every one of the seed of David, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me chase that seed for one minute. I have to. If you go look at our document in the New King James Bible, the first point you're going to see is the seed argument from Galatians 3.16. Let's, let's not just stop with David. Let's go all the way back to Genesis. Let's go all the way back to where God made promises with a man named Abraham and said, in thee and in thy seed, I'll give this land. I'll make your seed to be as multitudinous as the stars of heaven. All the nations of the earth will be blessed in thee and thy seed. Are you familiar with all those promises? They start in Genesis 12, they run to Genesis 24. When it says to Abraham and his seed, I have good news for you this morning. Amen. When it says to Abraham and his seed, who is the seed of Abraham, according to Galatians 3.16? The Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Apostle Paul tells us that. It is not the Jews. There is no blessing in being a Jew. That has been forsaken and gone. He left their house desolate to them. The blessing is in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the true seed of Abraham. Amen. Listen, no, now it's another minute. God told Abraham, he said, look north. I hope it's north. That's east. No, it's north. Yeah. Look south. Forget it. Abraham looked south. Abraham looked east. Abraham looked west. You know what the Lord said to him? To thee and thy seed, I'm going to give all this land. Amen. Seminary trained men who do not want to submit to the word of God come along and they read that and they think that God still owns the Jews some land in Palestine. Abraham didn't understand it that way at all. Right. Abraham did not understand that that piece of desert sand over there in the Middle East, one of the ugliest pieces of earth, was what God meant. Do you know what God meant by that? Heaven! Amen. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abraham wasn't looking for a country in this world. He was looking for a country in the world to come. Right. He was looking for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Amen. He was looking Amen. for heaven, and his seed was the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what Galatians 3.29 says. And if ye be Christ, are we believers in the Lord Jesus Christ this right. morning? Yes. Then are ye Abraham's seed Amen. and heirs according to the promise. Amen. Heaven is ours. The multitudinous seed is the great church that's worshiping right now in heaven that we are going to go and join very soon. Right. Brethren, don't get mistaken by that word seed. You know, that is a Jewish fable to believe that it was tied up in some earthly race. Salvation isn't by race, it's by grace. Amen. Salvation is in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we are in Him, by, and you can know that you're in Him by coming to Him, believing on Him, and being baptized in His name. Because right. that's what Galatians 3 tells you right in front of if He be Christ. Amen. That's the seed of David, the seed of Abraham. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Great promise was made of salvation through Him. And the land isn't that piece of sand over there. Give me the Ukraine. Give me something with some soil. Don't give me desert sand. But I don't want anything on this earth. I want heaven. And don't you be deceived into thinking that the promises are lost in Isaac. They came through Isaac. Then they came through Jacob. They came through... Which son would it be? Judah. And it came down through David. And it came down through Zerubbabel. And it came down to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are in Him because we are put in Him by the purpose and grace of God. And that is our salvation. Amen. God said to Abraham, To thee and thy seed I'll give all this land. How much of it did Abraham ever own according to Acts chapter 7 when Stephen preached? Now Stephen did not go to seminary, so Stephen preached the truth. Amen. What did Stephen say about Abraham and how much of that land he possessed? Not enough ground to put the sole of his foot on. Because the land was not the issue. It is amazing. Belly worshippers will always go for the land. Right. We can't wait till Israel's restored. They're not going to be restored down here. They're going to be restored up there. Amen. Jerusalem down here is in bondage with her children. And the Bible is compared to Hagar. Kick out the bondwoman and her children. Right. Is what Galatians chapter 4 teaches us. It's in heaven, brethren. Rejoice. You are the seed of Abraham. Amen. Because you're in Jesus Christ. The land is yours, which is heaven. The multitudinous church, the great nation that you're going to be in, is heaven. And all the hosts that stay are the spirits of just men made perfect. That isn't my point for this morning. Did I say one minute? Let's get back on track. 2 Peter chapter 1. I wanted to tell you that. I'm so discouraged at times to see people confused about the seed of Abraham. Then they get to Psalm 89 and they get confused about who is David? Who is the seed of David? Well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ and us in Him because God put us in Him. And then the real issue is, which we want to answer today, how can I know that I'm in Abraham? How can I know that I'm in David? How can I know I'm in Jesus Christ? Because you believe on Him. These things are written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that He may know that He had eternal life. We believe. We work righteousness. We do what is right according to God's Word. And we love the brethren. That's the message of 1 John. I just gave you the whole message of five chapters. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, work righteousness, and love your brethren. That proves you have eternal life. That John wrote that at the end, that you might know that you had eternal life, and he told you how. Believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth, sits at the right hand of God, and is coming to judge this world as the only Savior from sin. Fall upon Him for mercy, work righteousness, and love the brethren. You can know that you're Abraham's seed. Amen. Somewhere in there you get baptized too, after you believe. Because that's in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. 2 Peter chapter 1. What a wonderful passage. I can't read it all to you because it will keep me from where I want to go this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1, it tells us in verse 8. Let's start with 8. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful 
in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we've come to Jesus Christ, if we believed on Him, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't want to be barren or unfruitful. Right? So He's telling us we need some things in our lives. The word thing starts out verse 8. So we come to verse 9. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, instead of that kind of conduct in verse 9, here's what I want you to do in verse 10. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. The confidence of eternal life is right there in 2 Peter chapter 1. If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Is doing those things what earns our way into heaven? Not a chance. Is doing those things showing the character of God's children that will be in heaven because of divine and sovereign grace? Definitely. You can make your calling and election sure. Well, I want to know if God gave me to Jesus Christ in John 6, 35-40. I want to know if God's purpose and grace was toward me in 2 Timothy 1.9 before the world began. I want to know if God promised me eternal life before the world began, Titus 1.2 and all the other places. How do we know? We make our calling and election sure by doing these things and we ought to be diligent in the doing of them in verse 10. If you do these things, you shall never fall. There isn't a chance. Let the curtain of death come down over your eyes. The chariot's going to be there with the angels of heaven, and they're going to take you into heaven. You can never fall, and you won't fall out of that chariot. It's got a divine shoulder harness system. You will not fall. If you do these things, you shall never fall. It gets better than that. Look at verse 11. For so an entrance. Isn't that what we all want? An entrance into heaven? For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. An abundant entrance. There will be servants there giving you an abundant entrance into heaven, according to verse 11. And how can we make sure of that, each of us? By doing these things. Because if you do these things, you shall never fall. And what are the things? Verses 5. Verse 5. And beside this, giving all diligence. Here's the diligence. Add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, temperance. And to temperance, patience. And to patience, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. Eight things. If you do those eight things, and you do them sincerely, and you do them because God has asked you to do them, those things guarantee your salvation because they are the evidence of a saved man. This is what Peter taught. This is the teaching of the New Testament. Oh, there's going to be lots of people that call on his name. Make a decision for Jesus never saved anyone. Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Jesus said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. It's the doing that shows the character. It's the works that prove our faith is sincere that is the evidence of eternal life. And what a powerful passage this is. It gives us eight things. It tells us if we do, then we can never fall and we can make our election sure. 
You know, when people first learn about election, they want to know, oh, am I elect? Well, that's easy to answer. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ or not? Do you do these things in your life or not? The world doesn't do these things. Right. And when the world looks like they're doing them, they don't count with God ever. Right. Because they're not doing them out of faith and obedience to Scripture. So it doesn't count. When the little Boy Scout helps the little lady across the street, if it's not done out of faith toward God and obedience to the Scriptures, it doesn't mean diddly with the Lord. He's probably trying to earn a merit badge. It doesn't mean anything to God. Brethren, this is eternal life. This is how you can know. This is how you can lay a hold of it. And you can get an abundant entrance into heaven. You don't earn it this way. This is how you know you're going to have an abundant entrance. Because you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you do these things. Two more points from this passage. Peter said, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to keep pressing you about these things. Peter knew that there were saints that didn't know whether their election was sure or not. So beginning at verse 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, Peter said, as long as I'm alive, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, before my decease, I'm quoting some of the descriptions of death. He says, I'm going to keep reminding you of these things. I know you're already established in these things, but I'm going to keep reminding you because this is how you can know that you have eternal life. Right. The other thing I want to mention from this chapter, now it says, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and so forth. Oh, it wants us to do a whole bunch of adding. Where did the faith come from? Well, let's back up from verse 5 to 4 to 3 to 2 to 1. Let's read verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained life-precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. How do we get faith? God gives us faith through the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's how we obtain it. We have obtained it. That is a passive voice verb, meaning you are the recipient of an action, not the worker of that action. You have obtained something God gave you. He bestowed upon you the gift of faith. And what is that faith from what we've read this morning? John 6, 44. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him. And that is to give a man faith to where he would recognize the Lord Jesus Christ, believe on him, and want to obey him. God gives us that faith. He gives it to us by His divine power. According to verse 3, it says, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. It's by God's divine power that He gives us those things. And He gives us faith. Now we're to take that faith, put on the new man, and add to that faith virtue. And we're to add to that virtue that we've added to that faith knowledge. And so the eight things. And, and you're capable of doing them because God, by His divine power, has given you the ability to do those things. And you ought to do them. And I exhort you to do them. And it's by doing them, we know we will never fall. We will have an abundant entrance. Second Peter, chapter 1. First John, chapter 3. That was 2 Peter chapter 1. Now we go to 1 John chapter 3. I wish I knew how to tell you this good news. I'll do my best. It'll be inadequate. 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold, 
manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Amen. That we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. The blessed God chose us, like Peter would say, like John would say, like Paul would say, like Paul wrote Timothy. The blessed God of heaven chose us in Jesus Christ before the world began to adopt us as his children. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. We are not just called the sons of God, though that's what it says in this verse. We are indeed the sons of God by special adoption. We were in the orphanage of this sin-cursed rebel world that hated God. And the blessed God of heaven came and looked into that orphanage. Not a single one of us wanted him. We spat in his face and the, and the slobber ran down the glass as he looked into that cage where we and the rest of humanity were. And behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us to make us his children. He looked into there and he said, I want that one. That one that hates me there. That enemy of mine. Haul him out of there. And he went to court and he paid the price of the precious blood of his own son to buy us out of that orphanage. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Don't you ever feel unwanted, unloved, or that people don't give you enough attention. You're a son of God. Praise his great and glorious name. He should have left us there. We wanted to stay there. We loved to play things in that little hole that that was the orphanage. But the God of heaven chose us out of that orphanage and made us his children. We've had two steps of salvation done now. The God of heaven purposed to save. And he purposed to save specific ones that he saw in the orphanage of sinful humanity that would never obey him or come to him. The second thing is he paid for it with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We could never belong in heaven. We could never go home with that father and be with him as his children unless our sins were paid for because God can't allow a sinner in his presence with approval and affection. So he paid for us with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were kicking and screaming coming out of that little hole. The God of heaven wanted us, not his angels, the angels that sinned against God, he reserved an everlasting chains to destruction. Do you understand that? He passed those angels by and locked them up forever for an eternity of torment. He went past them to adopt us. Right. And we were kicking and screaming against him as they drug us out of that orphanage to present us to our Father. And I want to tell you the third stage of salvation is when the blessed God of heaven regenerated us to change our nature yeah. so that we'd be like him. He gave us that new nature by regenerating us so we're born again and we're like our Father. That's the third stage of salvation. It's called being born again. It it happens during your lifetime. Sometime after you're conceived, God regenerates you and gives you a new man inside that loves God, that loves to praise Him, that is receptive to Him, joys in His presence, responds to His presence. You are loved by the God of heaven. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe on Him this morning. Brethren, He changed our nature, and all of a sudden, 
All of a sudden, we wanted to get into that car with him and take that ride home. And you know what that means in my foolish but precious analogy? It means that when we hear the gospel preached, we believe it. We love it. It brings joy to us. Something's changed our nature. Instead of being a stupid, foolish, renegade rebel that loved the things of this world, now we love the things of God. We hate the things of the world. We have a new nature. And he takes us in his car, and all the way home he tells us about what he's done for us. And that is what I get to do. That is the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel doesn't help you in the worst orphanage. The preaching of the gospel doesn't help pay the price for you in court. The preaching of the gospel doesn't help change your nature. The preaching of the gospel tells your changed nature what great things yeah. God has done for you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And do you know what's at the end of that car ride, brethren? Heaven! Yeah. That's the gospel. It's that simple. How do I know that I'm in the car ride? Do you love hearing your father talk to you? Right here. Do you love hearing your father talk to you? Do you love to sing his praise? Do you know how you say thank you for that God of heaven? You get baptized. Baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. Sometimes I want to be baptized every week of my life. Now that would be a new call, wouldn't it? Don't you want... Don't you want to thank God and give the answer of a good conscience? That's eternal life. I've just told you the gospel. That's where we're going. We're in the car, right? How do you know you're in the car and not back in the orphanage? Do you love hearing God talk to you through His Word? Do you love to talk to Him? Does it bring joy to your heart? Do you want to obey Him? The things you read in the Scripture, you say, that's right. Wow, that's beautiful, Lord. Thank you. You're in the car on the way home. Not a doubt about it. And if there's, if there's a few others in that back seat where you're sitting, do you love them too? Right. Or do you look at them and say, I'm the only one that really belongs in this car on its way to heaven. Or do you love everyone else that's in that back seat with you? You're loving the brethren. And do you know what that's proof of? You're on your way to heaven. Amen. Because do you know what you were doing to those that are in the back seat when you were in the orphanage? You were trying to kill them. And they had to put you in a straitjacket to keep you from killing your brothers and sisters when you were back there in the orphanage. And now you're loving them in the back seat because you're all on the way to heaven. Right. And you know what? He didn't choose your friends to be in that back seat with you. He chose some people that would irritate you a little bit to see if you really love them for his name's sake. And so we're all a happy family on our way to heaven. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. How do you know that you're in the car on the way to heaven and not in the orphanage? Because I, I love every word of this. Because I want to obey Him. Because when I hear something new, I want to add that to my life. Because I love the brethren. Because I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I can't wait for Jesus Christ to be revealed from heaven. That's how you know. You're in the car for the ride home. You're just going to have to use the outline. I've given, you, I've given you hundreds of comparisons between the righteous and the wicked. There isn't any reason to doubt your salvation. There is such a great gulf between the righteous and the wicked. Yes. Right. When the Bible says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Right. Now listen, you've got a choice to make with that verse if you're worried about your salvation. When the gospel is preached to you, do you despise it? Do you just sit there and sleep? Can you not wait to get out of here to go home and watch television? Well, then you're going to hell. Because the verse says that the natural man, 
The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. But if you hear the things of the Spirit of God, I just told you some, and they light up your heart. They bring tears to your eyes, tears to your soul. They fill you with joy, confidence, and happiness, and you know it's the truth. You can discern it. That is the truth of God. I just heard the truth of God. You're on your way to heaven. See, that's just one example. 1 Corinthians 2.14. You've got to take every verse like that and say, well, that's describing a natural man. I'm not like that. When I hear the gospel preached, I love it. I wish it was preached more. I don't get tired of it. It's not foolishness to me. It's the opposite of that. Right. It's precious. It's wonderful. Do you know what you know? You're on the ride home. Amen. Why are you worrying about it? I wish I was better. To comfort your hearts. The Bible, the Bible isn't given to scare us. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. He didn't give us the Bible to scare us. He gave us the Bible to comfort us. Right. The whole Bible is to tell us what he's done for us back in the orphanage. And what he's going to do for us when we get to the end of the ride. And I'm telling you, I like the ride. The ride's pretty good. Yes. Amen. But when we get to the destination, it's going to be even better. Right. We're going to inherit God forever. Every verse of the Bible, others, I gave it to you the outline. First Corinthians 2.14 is one line. Do you respond to the preaching of the gospel the way a natural man does? Or do you respond entirely different? Okay. You're on the ride home. Now there's a devil in this world. There's a devil. He is angry and he hates the Lord Jesus Christ and he hates you. Do you know why? Because he was thrown out of heaven and you were promised to be in heaven. And he does not want you to have any joy of what I just told you. His life is bent on destroying you. If he can't seduce you away from Jesus Christ with the world, then he's going to use the Bible to give you some verses that will make you think you're not saved and you're not going to heaven. So that's what we have to end up with. And please be patient. If you'll be patient with me this morning, I'll be shorter tonight. But I want to teach you some verses. We're going to have a little Bible study right now. But there are verses in the Bible the devil uses, and he's used for 2,000 years from the New Testament to scare those little children on their way home in their father's car. You say, I've never heard it presented like that before. Well, then it's the first time. And I've brought something new of the treasury. I want to remind you that the devil knows how to use the Bible. What did the devil use with the Lord Jesus Christ? When Jesus Christ kept saying, it is written, I'm not going to make bread of stones because I'm out here fasting by the leading of the Holy Spirit. It is written. So as soon as the devil realized that, he didn't catch it the first time. He didn't catch it the second time. He caught it the second time. So then he tempted the Lord Jesus Christ with Scripture. He brought up Psalm 91 and took the Lord to the top of the temple and said, Listen, we've got these verses in Psalm 91. And we did read that psalm last Sunday, brethren. We've got these verses in Psalm 91. It says here that if you'll fall, God has already charged his angels to protect you, that you won't dash your feet against that stone way down there. The Lord Jesus Christ said, 
it is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Do you know what I told you all that for just now? There is a devil, and he is able, by the power of being a very powerful spirit being, to cast thoughts into your mind. It doesn't matter if you're saved or not. He can still cast thoughts into your mind. Peter once said to the Lord Jesus Christ, in Matthew chapter 16, right after Peter had sent something oh so good, then he rebuked the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. You know what they're called in Ephesians chapter 6? The fiery darts of the devil. Fiery darts. What are those fiery darts? Little doubts. Do you know where those doubts come from sometimes? The Bible. Because he misuses verses against you, and sometimes when they're reading through the Bible, and brother, this has happened for 2,000 years, precious little sheep, precious little children of God, that were saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, are reading their Bibles because they want to know more about their Father, and they find some scary verse that tells them they misunderstand it, and a fiery dart enters their heart because they don't have a pastor to protect them, and they think that they're not saved because of some verse in the Bible. Let's look at a few of them. I've got a whole pile of them here, and they're some of the most difficult problem texts in the New Testament because the devil's made them difficult when God put them there. But brethren, they're comforting. Amen. They're comforting when you understand them. Right. And you know what Psalm Proverbs 8, 8, 9 says? They're all plain to him and understand them. Amen. Let's go to Galatians 5 and start with a very easy one. We can't take long, brethren. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. A little child sitting in the back seat of that car on the way home and he reads Galatians 5, 4 and all he can see are the last five words. Ye are fallen from grace. All the way through the Bible he's seen the grace of God. The grace of God. That he was saved by grace. Freely by his grace. By grace without works. He sees it, and then he reads, Ye are fallen from grace. And if you think I'm exaggerating or making a straw man, you haven't been around religious circles very long, right. or you haven't listened very well. Right. The whole Church of Christ denomination in this country is based on this verse and a few others like it, that you can lose your salvation, and if there's one unconfessed sin in your life, when you part out of this life, you are on your way to hell. One unconfessed sin, and you are on your way to hell. Because of Galatians 5, 4, ye are fallen from grace. There's two. There's a 75-page document on the website that tells you how to understand the Bible. Right. Can I boil it down to 30 seconds? Two steps. First of all, prove what a verse cannot mean. And then, of the few remaining options, prove what it does mean. Right. When we look at Galatians 5, 4, there's one thing you can know for sure. No one ever falls from the grace of God. That's right. How do we know that? Because we started this morning with John chapter 6, yes. where Jesus said, I will not lose one of them, but raise it up again at the last day. Amen. Case closed. Yes. Church of Christ, you're man-worshipping Campbellites. Right. Following Alexander and Thomas Campbell, Presbyterians that became renegade Baptists that decided to start their own denomination in 1835. They're not followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're followers of Thomas and Alexander Campbell. They were called Campbellites until this effeminate generation came along that doesn't want to call names. 
But we're going to call them Campbellites because they're following a camel. Right? They're wrong about this verse. Now just look at the verse with me. Just look at it. Christ has become of no effect on a hope. And a little child chokes in the first part of the verse. Christ has become of no effect to you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Now we don't have time for me to preach a whole sermon on that verse. If you need more help on this verse, I'll help you later. I'll help you willingly, and the outline will help you. Right? No man falls from grace. And Christ doesn't become of none effect to any of his elect because he's going to save every single one of them. That's right. What is the verse saying? You are fallen from the right doctrine of grace because you people think you're justified by the law. But it doesn't say faith and it doesn't say doctrine because Paul's trying to make his point harder by having an ellipsis in there, leaving out words that make it more powerful. Look what it says. The verse says, Whosoever of you are justified by the law. Can anyone truly be justified by the law? Of course not. But other people that think they're justified by the law or they hold to a doctrine that can justify them by the law. Yes. So the words are left out there. What it's saying is you are falling from the right understanding of grace because you think you're justified by the law. And if you think you're justified by the law, then Jesus Christ has no purpose in your gospel. That's right. I am nothing. I'm less than nothing than all of you know. But I just taught you the truth about Galatians 5 4. Amen. It saved you from being discouraged in the last seat right. of the greatest limousine service the universe has ever seen. And the angels wish they could go along for the ride. All they're doing is looking in the windows to wonder how in the world you made it. Right. And how I made it. Am I exaggerating? Or is that 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 11 and 12? Amen. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Part of some of God's little children run into verses that discourage them and make them wonder, are they really, are they really in the ride to heaven or are they still in the orphanage? So many of these. I'm picking a few easy ones first because I don't want to get you lost. I find them all very comforting. This is why as soon as I can end Proverbs, I want to start problem text. Man, you ought to read what some of the men do with these verses. They don't know what to do with them, so they mess around and really twist things to try to get out of some of these verses. But there's, all, there's an easy solution. Submit yourself to God. And remember two things. What a verse cannot mean, and of its few remaining possibilities, what it must mean. Right. You say, how do you know that's the way to study the Bible? Because the Lord told me that and told you that. He told us that together. Second Peter 1 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Amen. Don't Amen. you dare. Don't you dare pull a verse up and try to teach me something the rest of the Bible doesn't teach. And when you pull up Galatians 5 4 and tell me that I can lose my salvation, you're trying to teach something from Galatians 5 4 the rest of the Bible doesn't teach. And Peter told me the first rule of Bible study tells me that you're a heretic. Right. 1 Peter 4, 17. Oh. Are, are you in the back seat with me? With little children who've been taught very little of the Bible, but do you know why they're reading the Bible? Because they know it's God's Word. Amen. And they land on they land on passages here and there that light up their soul. 
But they come to 1 Peter 4.17. For the time has come that judgment must begin in the house of God. And if it first begin in us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, scarcely, scarcely, what if I'm one of the ones that is not scarcely saved? If the righteous be scarcely saved, that sounds like barely saved. Am I saved? The verse doesn't say that the righteous will be lost. Let's start right there. The verse doesn't say that the righteous will be lost. It says that all the righteous will be saved, doesn't it? It just says they'll scarcely be saved. Read the context. You know what? If you read the context right now, how simple this verse is? Right. Judgment must begin at the house of God. Is that judgment you're wrong and you're not going to heaven? No, not that at all. You know what the judgment is of this context? Believers are a persecuted lot and you're going to suffer a lot of, a lot of afflictions, persecutions, and suffering in this world. And when it says that the righteous scarcely be saved, meaning that their life in this world is going to be filled with a lot of trouble, especially that generation who's going to be under a lot of persecution from pagan Rome, they're going to scarcely be saved in the sense that it's not going to look very good for them while they're here in this world. And Peter's argument was, if the righteous are scarcely saved, wait until he unloads his judgment on the wicked. If you read in front of the verse or behind the verse, it's very simple. It's talking about the afflictions of... Brother, You don't even have to pay to hear this. Well, forget that point. I would pay to hear this. This is wonderful. These are verses that when you're reading, what in the world does that mean? Scarcely be saved. Read the verses in front of it. Read the words, read the verses behind it. Look at it. Let's try verse 19. Wherefore, because of what I've just told you, the righteous are scarcely saved. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Now, does that verse sound like you're about to lose your salvation? Right. It sounds like no way you're going to lose your salvation as a faithful creator that's going to keep you. But while you're here, you couldn't suffer a whole lot because the verses in front of it tell you, yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Your life isn't going to look very good. They're going to throw eggs at that car as you drive along. They're going to spit on it. You say, have we read that already this morning? Yes, we have. Listen to this. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. The world knoweth us not. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Amen. Because this world hated the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to hate us. We are not going to be recognized in this world. Do you know what that verse really means? Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. That we should be called the sons of God, therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Do you really want to know what it means? Well, this is what it means. We ought to be celebrating inside this room right now because we are the sons of God on this earth. And all the paparazzi of this world are the outside those doors looking in, peering in, eavesdropping on us because in this room the sons of God have met. That is what that verse means. The world knoweth us not because it knew him not. When the world saw Jesus of Nazareth, they did not recognize the Lord of glory. The Bible tells us they wouldn't have crucified him if they had recognized him as the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Do you know what's in this room right now? An assembly of the sons of God. And the world does not know us, or they'd be out there painting our parking lot for us right now. They'd be our servants. They don't know us because they didn't know him. 
That's what it means. That's what it means. But brethren, the Lord unleashes them sometimes against us. And that's when the persecution, the afflictions, and the trials, and the tribulations come of 1 Peter 4. And that's what it means when it says that the righteous are scarcely saved. A lot of trouble in their lifetimes, but there is no doubt about their heaven. Because the 19th verse said, Commit your souls unto him as to a faithful creator. No problem there. Okay, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Doesn't that 1 John 3, 1 get you excited? What, what, is it, what does it mean to be a son of God? See, we just flip it out. We're the sons of God. Are you? We're the sons of God. Behold! Right. What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not. I think of 1 Corinthians 2.15, after the one about the natural man, it says, But even the spiritual judgeth all things, and he himself is judged of no man. Right. No one else can figure it out. You know inside God's made a difference, but they can't figure it out. That God has put his love and affection upon you. Until you go meet with one of them, you sit and talk with them, you talk for an hour. God doesn't even pass their mind or their lips for an hour. So you sit for another hour. They still can't say anything about the Lord. They can't thank Him for anything. They don't praise Him. They don't ask about Him. They don't bless Him. They don't worship Him. The world doesn't know Him. The Bible says God is not in all their thoughts. And then you talk for three hours. And you talk for four hours. Some of you that live in, in, in Christian homes, and you go to Christian schools, and your only friends really are others in this assembly, you know what that leaves you from understanding? That there is a great difference between you and the wicked. Right? God has changed us. Look at Hebrews 10. Look at this. Here's a child in the back seat of the car, and here's what they read. Verse 26 of Hebrews 10. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified and unholy pain and hath done despite under the Spirit of grace? For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. You read those six verses. And all that terrible judgment that's described in there that is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. You read all those verses about trotting underfoot the Son of God. You read in there about judgment and fiery indignation that will devour the adversaries. And do you know what the condition was to get yourself into that mess? If we sin willfully after that, we have received the knowledge of the truth. Has anyone in here ever sinned willfully after you received the knowledge of the truth? Every single one of you that were ashamed to raise your hands. You all know me. 
that verse doesn't have a thing to do with you. Right. Not a thing to do with you. Eternal judgment isn't in that passage at all. I've taught this before. I will take you as far as you want to go on this passage. There is not one shadow of one doubt in my mind about the simplicity of this passage. Amen. This passage is written to a specific, unique generation of people. Hebrew Christians. Paul wrote Hebrew brethren. For it says, for if we, there is not an unsaved person in the entire book. The book is the beloved brethren of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are Hebrew Christians. These are Jews that left temple worship. These are Jews that left the Levitical priesthood. These are Jews that despised the Pharisees and followed the Lord Jesus Christ. These are Jews that gave up their ceremonies to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul was afraid they were going to go back to worship with the Jews again. And this sinning willfully against the knowledge of the truth is joining themselves with the adversaries of Jesus Christ. A certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. There was a fiery indignation coming to devour the adversaries of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who were those adversaries? It was one generation. That Those words, one generation, are used from Matthew chapter 3 all the way to the end of the Bible describing one generation of exceedingly great sinners. And they were the ones that crucified the Lord of glory. John the Baptist began his ministry by saying, The axe is laid to the root of the tree. He shall, Jesus Christ will baptize you with the Holy... With the, I baptize you with water, but Jesus Christ shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. He will gather his wheat into his garner and burn up the chaff with fire unquenchable. And that was, oh, we could just read through the whole New Testament. Matthew 22, the king of heaven has a wedding, invites the Jews to it, and the Jews refuse to have it. What's the solution in Matthew 22, 7? He comes and kills those wicked men and burns up their city. Amen. The destruction of Jerusalem is one of the greatest events of the New Testament, and it's one of the most overlooked events. And that is what is under consideration throughout the book of Hebrews, because, brethren, he was writing to Hebrews. Right. Hebrews. So when it says, for if we sin willfully, well, what is the sin under consideration? Holding fast the profession of our faith and not wavering, verses 23 through 25. Because there was a lot of persecution against those Hebrew Christians to go back to be to worship with the Jews. If you left Jesus Christ and went back to worship with the Jews, do you know what you were doing? I'm the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you were aligning yourself back with his adversaries that cursed him on the cross and said, let his blood be on us and on our children. And God answered that prayer. Right. He, he annihilated them in 70 AD. Amen. Those wicked enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1.1 million died in the greatest persecution and suffering that the world has ever seen before or since. And that is what that chapter means. There's not an unsaved, false professor in there whatsoever. There isn't a Calvinist or an Arminian alive that can get out of that passage and be consistent with it. The whole book is addressing a unique generation. And it's a generation of Hebrews that were about, if they went back and joined the Jews, were about to get hammered by the judgment of God when he destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD to wipe out that wicked generation that had crucified his only begotten and beloved son. Amen. It's the profession of our faith. If you despise your faith, Hebrew Christians, and go back, 
Here's what's coming. Now let's read it again. For if we sin willfully, what sin? The sin of leaving our profession. If we sin willfully after that, we have received the knowledge of the truth, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. If you go back, there's nothing to protect you. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. What adversaries? The ones that were adversaries to Jesus Christ on, on the cross during his life, the Jewish generation that were against him and were not. What did Paul say about them? They were contrary to all men. They were the most devil-possessed generation the world has seen or ever will see. Right. Jesus said of that generation, I cast out one devil, he leaves and comes back and brings seven more just like himself. So shall it be on this generation. Right. That particular generation was the end of God's dealing with the Jewish people as a Jewish people. Now we're one in Christ, Jews and Gentiles. From the cross of Calvary, he united two into one. And he wiped out those rebellious rebels of his that were his enemies. There's so much that can be said from the Gospels on this subject. I've said so much of it to you before. I will say so much to you again. But let's just keep reading. He that despised Moses' law. You know, you Jews, you Hebrews, you understand how severe God was under the Old Testament. You know his laws. If you despised Moses' law, you died under two or three witnesses. If there were two people you, that said you'd done something wrong, it was over. Of how much sore punishment will belong to someone who has trodden underfoot the Son of God? Those who crucified him, and those who once professed him, and then went back and joined them. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God, and that generation of Jews fell into his hands in 70 AD. Jesus came in victorious judgment on that terrible generation. This gospel of the kingdom was preached in all the world for a witness, and then the end came, and the end was the Jewish state. Peter on the day of Pentecost said, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Do you know what it says in Acts 2.40? It says, With many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. This untoward generation was contrary to all men, and judgment when wrath of God was come upon them right then over those 40 year period because Paul said so in 1 Thessalonians 2 15 and 16 judgment is come upon that generation save yourselves from it now if a, if a person was converted at Pentecost and then couldn't put up with the persecution and went back in, into worship with the Jews he was joining himself to that untoward generation again and what were they untoward toward the Lord Jesus Christ. They were his adversaries. That's what Hebrews 10 means. You couldn't fit into Hebrews 10 if you had to or tried to. You can't get into it. It's not even written to you. No more does this passage apply to you than you going to the book of Leviticus and wearing some of the goofy clothes they wore in the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus was written to the Levites to tell people, to tell men of the Old Covenant how they would address and act as priests. Right. We read it for the indirect principles that it gives us, and we read this for the indirect principles that it gives us as well. This is a warning of God's severe judgment when we cast off our first profession. But this isn't even written to Gentiles. It's written to a unique generation. You know, we can't read Acts 2.40 and understand for us, when Peter says, save yourselves from this untoward generation, our particular generation of Gentiles 
is no more untoward than the one before it and the one coming. It's the generation of those who crucified Jesus Christ. Having dealt with that one, there's three more of those in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 2. Chapter 2 says, if we let these things slip, how shall we escape? Right? Now, if, there, if, if the question is being asked by Paul, how shall we escape, that means that there is no escape. If we let these things slip. Hebrews 10, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 12 all have short little sections that when a child of God reads them without understanding the book of Hebrews or his security in Jesus Christ, he thinks, I might not be able to escape. I might fall away and never be able to be renewed to repentance. I have turned away from Jesus Christ who spoke from heaven in chapter 12, and our God is a consuming fire. He's going to burn me up. No, our God is a consuming fire. He's going to burn up that kingdom that he left behind. Right. And he did. Because there's a new kingdom here. There was a new kingdom here since the days of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Amen. And that takes care of four of them right there. And they're, they're all very easily understood in the book of Hebrews, especially if you'll read chapters 3 and 4 where God said that he had an oath against that generation. Right. There was a generation that came out of Egypt and he offered them Canaan. They said, we don't want it because we're afraid of the giants. So he swore in his wrath, you'll never see it. They said, we repent. We sin. Moses, we're going to go up and take the land. It's too bad. God had sworn with an oath against us. Right. Two whole chapters of the book of Hebrews. Do you know why that's given there? Is, that, is it given there because they didn't understand the history of their own nation? Or is Hebrews 3 and 4 given to tell them that they were under the same probation? Right. Therefore, let us fear, lest, lest there be a promise left us of entering into his rest, and if you should seem to come short of it. That was to that same generation, that if they did not take advantage of what Paul was preaching to them, and they went back into Jewish worship, they were going to be wiped out, and God had sworn with an oath against that generation as well. Hebrews 3 and 4, let us therefore fear. And it's not really our fear, it was the fear of a unique generation called the Hebrew Christians in the book of Hebrews. 1 Corinthians 11. I'll not be much longer. I, I won't be. I'm sorry for such a lengthy... There's so much more that could be said. No child of God needs to fear in reading Hebrews 10 or 2 or 6 or 12 right. except... Except that God does not deal kindly with those that leave their first profession of faith and go back to the vomit of a dog or the wallowing of a pig. Right. It would, you know what he says about those kind of fools? This is how it applies to us. It would, have better, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and turned from it back into foolish things of this world. That's how it applies to us indirectly. But the real, the real application in the book of Hebrews is the Hebrews. Amen. The ones that we're just about to be unloaded on. By the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 11. Someone's reading through 1 Corinthians 11 because they want, to, they want to prepare themselves before the Lord's Supper. And they come to verse 27 and they read this. Here's one of God's little sheep. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. 
But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. A little sheep reads that. His pulse rate goes up. You've all done it. I've partaken of the Lord's Supper unworthily sometimes by not having been as thorough in my confession, as thorough in my self-examination, as thorough in my love of Christ as I was at other times. Have I brought myself under the damnation of God? And there can only be one definition for damnation. It's got to mean that I'm going to go to hell. Because it's damnation. That's a bad word. That's a strong word. That means I'm going to go to hell because I didn't take the Lord's Supper right sometime. You know what this passage tells you? It gives you comfort, not despair. It gives you hope, not fear. Watch. Verse 30. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. You just got the definition of damnation. What is it? Practical judgment a physical weakness, sickness, or you die prematurely. But the same thing about going to hell. It says you got judged practically and physically because you abused the Lord's Supper. It's, these are the saints. This epistle is written to saints. There aren't false professors in a passage like this. Who wants you read one Calvinist on one passage? You've read them all. Do you know what the whole Bible is written about Paul's professors? The whole Bible. None of them had eternal life, but they all look like they have eternal life. Now that is incredible. The Bible says that's impossible. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. A man of flesh cannot bear the fruit of the Spirit. And yet their whole Bible is a bunch of false professors. These aren't false professors. These are carnal Christians right. in the church of Corinth that were saints, called of, God, called of God, and had eternal life secure. Here's what it says. Let's keep on reading. Verse 31, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. What right. does that verse teach us, 31? It teaches us that the word damnation really means judgment. And it teaches us that if we would take care of self-examination before the Lord's Supper, we wouldn't be getting weak, sickly, and dying early. That's 31. Verse 32. But when we are judged, we are chastened. Wow! Thank you, Lord! But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord by continuing to read. Look at how we define words now. Damnation equals, equals judgment. And judgment in this place equals chastening. Right. Chastening in the Bible is God's tender affection toward us as His children. Well, let's read the rest of this verse. For, but when we are judged, when we're judged... In this manner of damnation, physical problems, because we abuse the Lord's Supper, when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Amen. The, the fact that we get weak, sickly, and the Lord may even take our lives, because we abuse the Lord's Supper, do you understand what I just told you? Instead of thinking that that's evidence that you're not saved, it's proof that you are saved because he would never chasten someone that wasn't saved. Right. And the reason he chastens you is so that he won't have to condemn you in the end. 
He will have given you your spanking in time, and they will spend an eternity in hell. We, when we are judged by physical problems in our lives for disobeying God and not taking the Lord's Supper appropriately, we are chastened of the Lord. The loving Father comes and chastens us for our foolish behavior that we should not be condemned with the world. Amen. What a difference is made in a passage that some people end up fearing they've lost their eternal life. You don't need any help with 1 John 3, do you, where it says, He that is born of God does not commit sin. Does that mean he never sins? And David, Peter, Samson, and Solomon are long gone, aren't they? So is Lot and Noah. What was Noah's sin? Oh, bad. David's. Noah's. Samson. Samson! Do you mean he's saved? How do we know Samson was saved? Hebrews 11 tells us his name was in the book of life. So when it says, he that is born of God does not commit sin, it cannot it cannot attempt for us to especially since if you got to chapter 3, you had to read chapter 1, where it says, if any man say that he has no sin, or if any man says that he has not sin, he's a liar and doesn't know anything about the truth. So what in the world does John mean in 1 John chapter 3? And what he means is, you have within you something that does not allow you to be comfortable or to continue in sin, unabated without repentance, because you have a seed in you that will not let you live like that. Right. It will keep bothering you. Sometimes it's weak because you've not fed very well. Do you know what it says about Lot? Lot was pretty weak. But do you know what it tells us about Lot? He was vexed every day with the filthy conversation of the wicked that were around him. We know Lot's in the book of life because 2 Peter 2 tells us that. But he lived in the city of Sodom. So 1 John 3 means this. It says, he cannot sin because his seed remaineth in him. What is that seed? The new man. The new man puts up a struggle against that old man. And so you have times of repentance. You have times of zeal. You do not live an unabated life of wickedness. You pursue righteousness because of that new man inside. Sometimes men pursue righteousness without knowing very much because they haven't been taught very well. It's hard to recognize them. But 1 John 3 is saying, you want the evidence of eternal life, brethren? You don't continue in sin. You don't live a sinful lifestyle. Where's your repentance? There is no sin in God. And if you're His child, you're not going to live a life like that. And the whole, the whole chapter was written so that you might know that you have eternal life. And the evidence is, by righteousness, because a wicked man never pursues righteousness. Right. But a man with a seed in him does pursue righteousness, sometimes stronger than others, but he does pursue righteousness. Is there an unpardonable sin in the Bible? It's blasphemy in the Holy Ghost. Can you commit the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Ghost? Not James. You haven't been in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth when the power of God was upon him to cast devils out of men that you knew were devil-possessed and that you knew was the Spirit of God. But because of envy that he was taking away followers of yours, you said this man is casting out devils by the power of the devil. God came down and anointed Jesus Christ with the Holy Ghost and with power. Yeah. And when 
When men stood in his presence, the power of God was there as the finger of God. This is the chapter, this is the passage. This is the context. If I, by the Spirit of God, are casting out devils from among you, then the finger of God is here, and the kingdom of God has arrived. But those Pharisees were so depraved, profane, and reprobate that Jesus Christ condemned them. He did not give the saints of God something for them to worry about. He just wanted to tell them where they were going in a different way. And so what he told them is, listen, if you want to pick on me because I'm Jesus of Nazareth, you can't recognize me as the Son of God because I came from that smelly little town of Nazareth. You can't recognize me because I've done nothing noble in your opinion in my life. You can't recognize me because the 12 men following me are fishermen. You can't recognize me in my incarnate state. If you blaspheme against me, it will be forgiven you. Was Paul blasphemer against the Lord Jesus Christ? Indeed he was, if God forbid. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, who was before a blasphemer. Right. But Jesus said, if you say that the power that is being demonstrated in front of your eyes right now is the power of the devil instead of the power of God, you are going to hell and there is no deliverance for you. That's what's being taught there. Right. And it's not something for you to worry about, about whether you have committed the unpardonable sin. You can't be a Pharisee standing in their shoes at that time with the power of God shaking the ground around you while devils are coming out of men professing Jesus Christ to be the Son of God. You know what? They didn't know. Nicodemus came and said, We know you're a teacher sent from God. Right. They hated him, though, because they couldn't stand the fact they were losing their position. Pilate knew why they crucified him. Right. Out of envy. Lord's Day, but I want to remind you again. If you've had part of the first resurrection, which is being born again, the second death has no power. Amen. How do we know that we're born again? The first epistle of John is given for you to know if you're born again. He that believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Amen. He that loveth his brother can know that he has passed from death into life. Right. And he that doeth righteousness is born of God. In that little epistle, which was given for the comfort of your souls, and it says that you can assure your hearts before him, and so that you can know without any doubts that your name is in the book of life, that you're born again, that you were in the first resurrection. Believe on Jesus Christ, do righteousness, love the brother. Your name is in the book of life. Yeah. You know, we look at this Bible and we trust it for so many other things. The whole world is telling us that the universe was created by a big bang and that your grandparents were monkeys. The whole world tells you that, and if you don't believe that, you're a fool. But we read Genesis 1 and say, they're fools. Right. The world says, kids, you can't beat them. We read Proverbs and it says, thou shalt beat him with a rod and shall deliver his soul from hell. We tell the whole world 
with all their PhDs, all the psychologists, all the psychiatrists, all the social workers, we tell them they're nuts, and we trust the Word of God, that if we'll discipline our children and train them up in the way they should go when they're old, they'll not depart from it. Do you know how much confidence you put in the Word of God against all the vested interests of men and all their educated opinions? Well, why not do it on this one? If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and you want to do righteousness, and you love the things that I've told you this morning, and you love the message that there was an adoption from an orphanage, and you want to love the other children in the backseat of that limo with you, you are born again on the same basis as everything else we believe and obey from the Bible. By faith. Believe it this morning. You say, but what if my name gets blotted out of the book of life? Are you, are you thinking of Revelation 3.5? In Revelation 3.5 it says he will not watch your name on the book of life. Amen. Why in the world are you worrying about getting your name blotted out of the book of life from a passage that says he will not watch your name on the book of life? Right. You say, well, why did he put it in language like that? So that those who wanted to teach that you could get your name blotted out of the book of life would have a verse to go to. That's right. And you be taught the truth. Do you know what I want to know from somebody that puts me in their will. See if I can explain Revelation 3.5 conveniently for you. If someone puts me in their will every time I meet them, you know what I want them to say to me? Don't worry, Jonathan. I'm not going to watch you at my will. Right? That's what I want. If he didn't say anything about the will, I wonder if he erased me this past week. So whenever, <laughs> you follow me? Man. When I see him, I want him to say to me, don't worry. You keep being, you, you keep living the way you are. <clears throat> There's no way I'm going to blot you the book of life. See, God knew what men's wills were like. You know, men change their wills all the time. That's why there's a whole group of people called attorneys. But the Lord never changes his have I read that this morning from Psalm 89? It's as faithful as the moon in the heaven. Amen. His will will never be changed. In Revelation 3, 5, it was just, if you'll be overcomers, you dear saints of mine, I promise, I'm not going to blot your name of the book of life. My covenant isn't like the covenants of men. It's sure. The gifts and callings of God are without repentance. Right. He doesn't change or alter the facts. We're going to come back tonight. We're going to sing about Jesus Christ's salvation in heaven. And I hope that you can look forward to getting together with the other children, the sons of God, that have been saved from the orphanage of this world and are on our way to heaven. Right. Stay with me. thank thee for thy son Jesus Christ and we believe on him and he is precious to us. Yes. We thank thee, O Lord, for choosing us in Jesus Christ before the world began and making us your sons. Right. We understand why the world doesn't know us because it didn't know you or your son Jesus Christ. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you will fill our hearts with faith yes. and that you will 
exercise that divine power in our lives, that we might add to our faith virtue and so forth, that we might do these things and not be barren nor unfruitful in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen. But that by doing these things and giving diligence to them, we can make our calling and election sure and know that we shall never fall. Have mercy upon us. Confirm all the trembling hearts of your little children and your sheep and bless us to encourage each other, comfort each other in the certainty of our salvation. Go with us to our homes. Strengthen our bodies and our minds. Help us to remember what we've heard. And let not the devil snatch it away, but that it might bring forth much fruit. This we ask, calling upon thee, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our only hope of salvation. Amen. 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 You are dismissed.